Welcome to the National Library of Australia and to the annual Ray Matthew Lecture, which celebrates the achievements of Australian writers. I'm Anne-Marie Schwedlich and I'm the Director General of the National Library. In welcoming you this evening, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we are now privileged to call home. Thank you all for being with us for the Ray Matthew Lecture, named in honour of the Australian poet and playwright Ray Matthew. Chiefly remembered as a playwright, Ray Matthew was also an accomplished poet and author of short stories, novels, criticism and non-fiction. He published three anthologies of poetry, numerous poems in magazines, many short stories, plays, including the much-performed A Spring Song, a novel, studies of Miles Franklin and Charles Blackman, radio plays and film scripts. Ray Matthew left Australia in 1960, and despite high praise from contemporaries such as Max Harris, who said Matthew could write like nobody's business, his promise as a writer was never fully realised. Although he kept writing until his death, he had no new plays or books published after 1967. Life in New York did, however, bring him the friendship and the patronage of David and Ava Colesman, whose New York apartment he shared from 1968 until the end of his life in 2002, aged 73. The library has been collecting the papers of Matthew since 1977. After his death, the collection was significantly enhanced with presentations from Ava Colesman. Covering five decades, the papers include letters, diaries, observation books, literary drafts, programs, press cuttings and Pixie O'Harris's artworks. The Ray Matthew and Ava Colesman Trust is a generous bequest made to the library by Ava Colesman in honour of her friend to support and promote Australian writing. Ava Colesman's legacy has enabled the National Library to support Australia's writing community and to bring to light some of Ray Matthews' unknown work, to bolster our events program and also to fund an online project to make accessible to researchers the papers of Australian writers. We are delighted that Andrea Goldsmith joins us this evening to deliver the 2015 Ray Matthew Lecture. And you are in for a treat because from the very beginning she was really so excited about doing this lecture and being here for you. Andrea Goldsmith is one of our most beloved writers. She published her first novel, Gracious Living, in 1989 and her most recent novel, The Memory Trap, was published last year. Peter Pierce, reviewing it in the Sydney Morning Herald, described the novel as a meditation on memory, the perils of too much reliance upon it, and the willfulness of misremembering. As well as publishing seven novels, she's an essayist covering topics and characters as diverse as the Holocaust, the mind, Iris Murdoch, Susan Sontag, 
and Oliver Sacks. She has been anthologised widely, including in Best Australian Essays, and has recently become a member of the Board of Australian Book Review. Please welcome Andrea Goldsmith to, deli to deliver the 2015 Ray Matthew Lecture, Private Passions, Public Exposure. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here um, giving the Ray Matthew Lecture. Um, he covered a huge amount in his lifetime and um, it's something that we writers today who tend to specialise, we, we, we can learn from him. In an imaginary letter to the great Argentinian writer Borges, composed ten years after his death, Susan Sontag referred to him as a mental traveller. It's a familiar concept to all creative workers, whether artists or artisans, scientists or social theorists. Indeed, it's familiar to anyone who takes pleasure in the imagination. The mental traveller can go any place on or off the planet, to any time, past or future. The mental traveller can enter any mind, animal, plant, human, extraterrestrial, and rummage around for a minute, an hour, a week, or years. Mental travellers can find a way through a thicket of prime numbers or untangle a clot of abstract concepts. They can move through a mire of love, jealousy, grief and resentment, gathering clarity on the way. They can source an infinite store of personal memory, desire, hope, knowledge and experience. And at the same time, mental travellers can choose the best writers, painters, scientists, historians, composers and musicians as their guides and companions. Rich in resources, the mental traveller never knows boredom. Mental travellers may produce novels, music, buildings, theorems, pharmaceuticals, paintings, posters, fashions or furniture. They may simply be taking a holiday from the demands of everyday life. The underlying quality to all mental travelling is that it's imagined and it is creative. Its most common expression is daydreaming. This is not the passive time waster it's often accused of being. Somerset Maugham, in his memoir, Summing Up, writes that reverie is the groundwork of the creative imagination. Reverie, a grown-up word that adds respectability to daydreaming. The requirements of the mental traveller are few and they're cheap. Primary among them are solitude, contemplation, focused attention and privacy. The activity is open to anyone. Children and adolescents, overworked parents and cognitively impaired octogenarians, gardeners, grave diggers, bank tellers, bookkeepers, electricians and librarians. Anyone can opt to be a mental traveller, but it's an essential requirement for the creative artist. I was born a second child and second daughter 
who in another couple of years with the birth of my younger brother would become a mostly unnecessary middle child. Childhood and I were not an easy fit. Filled with anxiety, I was getting the child role wrong and ever alert to tools that might help me navigate those perilous years. I studied other children and adults too in order to learn the ropes. The price of such vigilance was inexhaustible exhaustion. I was watchful during the day and the nights were spent analysing the previous day's mistakes and planning how to be perfect in the next. The most reliable respite I had from this anxiety was not sleep, with so much to do, I was a poor sleeper, but fiction. I'd slip into other places and other lives and relieved of my burdensome self, I would be stimulated and invigorated. Egoless, I would know contentment. Spurred on by books, I'd separate from my usual trials and travel through distant epochs and fantastic places of my own devising, meeting famous people and marvellous creatures whose company was literally the best imaginable. So began a life of mental travelling. Reading provided an effective panacea during the formidable and seemingly endless years of childhood. It also provided one activity my mother and I shared. A devoted reader herself, she encouraged me to browse her bookcase. She would recommend titles. She would help me pass difficult first chapters by reading them aloud to me. She was doubly rewarded in her bookish child, with two other extremely demanding children to attend to, she knew if I was reading, I could be left alone. It suited me. I loved everything about reading. I loved the characters in books better than most of the people in my real life. I loved reading so much, I'd already decided to be a writer by age eight. Although I kept my ambition to myself, having learned through those troubled years of childhood that whatever I valued must be protected, kept private. So the life, the private life of the novelist began. And while I never wavered in my ambition, an incident the year I turned 13 served to reinforce my decision. It was a late November day, exams finished, the year winding down, when, with no prior warning, I was summoned to the principal's office. I had no idea what I'd done, but I knew it must be very serious. By the time I arrived at his door, I could barely walk, I could barely talk, and I wanted to vomit. The principal was quick to enlighten me. I had, he said, been found in possession of filth. The filth was Han Su Yin's novel, A Many Splendid Thing. He demanded to know where I'd obtained it. From my mother's bookcase, I said, and I added with her permission. I was accused of lying. No respectable woman, the principal said, would keep such a book in her home. (laughs) My mother wrote to the principal explaining I had indeed told the truth and the matter was dropped. But I learned from this incident that books were not only a source of life-giving pleasure and stimulation... They could also be dangerous and very powerful. A year or so later, Mary McCarthy's The Group was banned. Arthur Ryler, 
the Deputy Premier of Victoria at the time said he certainly wouldn't want his teenage girl daughter reading it. His daughter was 25 at the time. I, on the other hand, had been privy to a pirated copy, or rather some much-fingered, fast-fading, roneoed pages. <laughs> the pages, as it happened. Around this time, I also learned about Lady Chatterley's Lover, Joyce's Ulysses, and Henry Miller's novel, The Tropic of Cancer, all like the group Band for Obscenity. It's quite a nice word. A couple of years later, and fired by a slender poetry book, I first became aware of political censorship and the persecution of writers. The book was called Modern European Verse, and it cost 50 cents, and I still have it. In a single volume, I was introduced to Brecht, political persecution, Kefafi, who was gay, Solan's Death Fugue, which is one of the best poems ever written about the, the Holocaust, Lorca, Markovsky, Pasternak, Rilke, and Yevtyshenko's Babi Yar. It was a short journey from there to Anna Akhmatova and Ossip Mandelstam, both of whom became and remain among my life's essential poets. Art, I was learning, was a risky business with the power to expose complex and previously opaque truths. In the world I was trying to inhabit, my middle-class, beige, lukewarm, everyday-might-be-Wednesday world, this power of art, of books in particular, was not simply fascinating and admirable. It awakened a hunger in me to which I responded without really understanding. I read before school, I read after school, I read through weekends and school holidays, I read when my siblings were playing, I read in preference to all other activities. I became an ardent mental traveller thanks to the riches on my mother's bookcase and in the local library. Outwardly, I was careful to conform. Inwardly, I was wild. I would imagine places, people, dinners, deaths, coincidences and conversations. I'd give my people emotions, anger, longing, love, sadness, all those emotions I prohibited in my own life. Soon I discovered that I could construct these imagined people and their imagined worlds at will. I might be sitting at my desk with homework or studying for exams and I'd permit myself 30 minutes respite during which I would travel into one of my imagined scenarios, 30 minutes in which I'd lose myself, vent my frustrations and confusions, invent scenes and situations so much more preferable than those on offer in the real world. 30 minutes would stretch to an hour. I didn't care. I was totally captivated by the worlds within my head and strengthened when I returned to real life. Among my various guides, Iris Murdoch reigned supreme. She wrote into existence eloquent and original men and women whom I slipped into my own imaginings. Sebastian, Chloe, Franca, Tristan, Clement, Rainborough, and not a Janet or John anywhere in her pages. She wrote of a world I truly believed existed, a world that when I was finished with childhood in suburban Melbourne, I would find and inhabit, and in which, like Iris herself, I would write books. 
so I would be a novelist. But I was faced with a crucial paradox. At that time in my life, much of the power, pleasure and solace of fiction, indeed all imaginative activity, was that it was essentially private. I wanted my novels, my future novels that I hope to write, to be published. But if this were to occur, my world of constant stimulation, which was at the same time my haven and sanctuary, would be exposed. Fortunately, by the time Penguin published my first novel, Gracious Living, I'd learned that the public expression of imaginative work is vastly different than those early mental wanderings that first give a book life. I had learned mastery, control and management. I'd learned that art permitted a shifting from the private and personal to something separate from the author and accessible to a large number of people. As George Steiner, the critic, has written, this translation out of the inarticulate and the private into the general matter of human recognition requires the utmost crystallisation and investment of introspection and control. The writer is driven by a desire to make perfect. This process of refinement through revision is the major part of writing and it is wholly conscious and it is a wholly conscious and deliberate process. But in the early stages of a new work, when thoughts, ideas, situations, entire characters emerge from the imaginative swill, there's much mystery and wonder too. Take Auden's Musée des Beaux-Arts. This great poem was inspired by Bruegel's painting that you see there, The Fall of Icarus, which hangs in the Musée des Beaux-Arts in Brussels. The poem was written in December 1938 when Auden was just 31 years old. Auden and his friend, the writer Christopher Isherwood, had set off at the beginning of 1938 for China, to collect material for a travel book. They journeyed throughout the country, taking note of the people, the landscape and the customs. During their travels, they were constantly aware of the war between China and Japan, although more as background rumble than intrusive, unavoidable aggression. In June, the two men arrived in New York where they met up with friends and embraced the life and familiarity of the West. Auden was in Brussels in August of that year and again in December. Throughout this year of travelling, he was deliberating whether to emigrate to the United States, and he did so the following year. It was against this background that, in December 1938, Auden wrote Musée des Beaux-Arts. The starting point is Bruegel's painting. A little over a metre wide and about 80 centimetres tall, it depicts a summery day, the sun shining on the smooth water of the bay, an elegantly carved ship in the foreground, other ships more distant. On the land overlooking the bay, there's a farmer working his plough, a herdsman daydreaming amongst his sheep, and a fisherman perched on a bank pulling in a catch. It's a peaceful scene, 
Everyone's just going about their business. But between the fishermen and the expensive, delicate ship, there's a boy falling headfirst into the water, his flailing legs making a splash. The figure is small and easily overlooked. If not for the title of Bruegel's painting, The Fall of Icarus, most people would not see the boy. And now the poem. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position. How it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course anyhow in a corner, some untidy spot, where the dogs go on with their doggy life and the torturous horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The ploughman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. Perhaps it was Auden's recent experience of the war in China as background. Perhaps it was the prevailing threat from Germany that people were assiduously avoiding. Perhaps it was the Nazi persecution of the Jews that all nations were conveniently ignoring. Perhaps Auden had been reading some particular philosophy or religion or the classics. Or perhaps it was something more personal that Auden had experienced slights from lovers or maybe friends had let him down. A multitude of factors might explain his response to the fall of Icarus, a painting I assume he had seen before. But whatever they were, Auden was seized by Bruegel's focus, the turning away from the disaster rather than the disaster itself, the death of the boy. That Marvellous boy who flew too close to the sun. The boy who through foolishness, negligence or wild curiosity attempted to stretch what was humanly possible. It's impossible to know what occurred in the privacy of Auden's mind, nor would we want to. What can be said is that Bruegel's painting hooked into Auden's imagination. It connected with memory experience, emotion, intellect, reason, books, other art. It connected with Auden's past and present and his hopes and fears and ideas for the future. As for the poem itself, it's a refinement, a distillation and ultimately a highly controlled public product of the complex 
private workings of Auden's mind. This is what art can do, whether music, visual art, fiction, poetry. If given the opportunity, it can insinuate itself into the vast territory of mind. It can excavate memories, ideas, hopes and insights and it can inspire something original, a new work of art. The best readings of art are art, as George Steiner has observed. Just over ten years ago, in the very early days of the novel that would become Reunion, I decided for reasons unrelated to the nascent work to memorise Auden's great poem. It was a difficult time. My partner, the poet Dorothy Porter, was being treated for cancer and my mother was disappearing into the tunnel of dementia. I was anxious, stressed, fearful, yet needed to appear strong, responsible and, above all, optimistic. When life is riven with uncertainty and the days are as quicksand, the act of memorising fills time with something finite, certain and solid. Simultaneously, it pushes the foundering self from the forefront of consciousness, just like the mental travelling of childhood, and such a welcome respite this is. Once I'd memorised the poem, I'd lie awake at night silently reciting it over and over, thereby thwarting other more disturbing and anarchic thoughts. This, I would later realise, was more than the literate person's version of counting sheep. One line in particular kept resonating, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. This line, the centre of the poem, would be instrumental in shaping my new novel, not that I was conscious of this at the time. Reunion centres on a group of friends known to one another since university days. They're the brightest and best of their generation. A molecular biologist, a novelist, a philosopher who becomes a TV celebrity and a scholar of comparative religion. They go their separate ways for 20 years, pursuing their careers in various parts of the world before being reunited back in Melbourne. At this time, each of them is facing a serious crisis of career, of love and, in one case, of life itself. Each of these friends would insist on their loyalty to all the others. Yet despite their protestations of love and commitment and care, each turns away quite leisurely from the various disasters unfolding before them. It was long after reunion was finished that I realised how Auden's 21-line poem had fed into my 110,000-word novel. A similar process to that of reunion occurred with my next novel, The Memory Trap, but in the latter case, the initial imaginative trigger was music. Music is truly the transcendent art. It warrants its placement at the centre of the imagination. At times, I think music is all mind and all heart simultaneously. A few months after my partner died, months during which I had avoided music so as not to risk the incontinent emotion that music would release, 
I found myself reaching for the requiems in my music library, Mozart, Fauré, Verdi. I listened and I kept listening because while the music played, I experienced respite from the grieving, tormented self. The requiems captured me in some blessedly welcome and total way. I started buying requiems and having discovered that more than 2,000 had been composed was reassured to know I would never run out. (laughs) I didn't question what was happening. I was afraid that if I tried to deconstruct the experience, it might desert me. This music held my attention. It allowed me stillness and stimulation. But most of all, it silenced the burdensome, life-wracked I. When not listening to requiems, grief muscled in on consciousness and colonised it mercilessly. Grief is untidy, brash, sly and bullish. Absence and loss are unremitting pain. I tried to contain the grief and loss by barricading the mind, the imagination, with contrived order, predictable activity, mind-filling and mind-numbing occupations. I completed jigsaw after jigsaw. I played online Scrabble. I, who had never before collected anything, started a coin collection. And for hours at a time, I would arrange 50-cent pieces according to a variety of strategies. I reached out for order to impose on my chaos, activity to batten down grief and repel wayward thoughts. I tried to stop her, the imagination. Fortunately, I failed. First came the requiems, then Mahler's symphonies, the big ones. The second, the third, and most particularly, the huge epic of the eighth, which A number of musos say is really over the top, but it was just big enough for me. The music simultaneously dwarfed me and transported me away from deafening, all-consuming grief back to poetry and prose. In the solitude of my home, with my dog pressed against me, I began to read again, connecting with people who'd experienced what I was going through. I started with C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed, read many years earlier but striking a much richer chord now. There were poetry collections and Tennyson's In Memoriam and several novels and memoirs, including the work of Julian Barnes, who, with the death of his wife, Pat Kavanagh, just a few months before Dorothy died, was writing and publishing as if his very life depended depended, depended on it. Once I began, I couldn't stop. Rather than squeezing out the imagination with mind-numbing occupations, I needed it to let it run. Th- I needed to let it run free through the words and the art of others. And soon I was writing again. Firstly, a long essay, and then the novel that would become *The Memory Trap*. And I started with music. This novel was to explore genius, and in the case of my character, the pianist Ramsay Blake, musical genius. I'd long been interested in the extent to which we'll excuse bad behaviour in seriously gifted people because of the extraordinary gifts that they give us. I listened to a lot of music in the creation of Ramsay. 
Over the next two to three years, starting with my pianist, I spent long days at my desk creating the lives of the five main characters, their loves, their marriages, their disappointments, their work, one of them is a biographer, their yearnings, their frailties. While immersed in the fictional world, my own troubles were quiet. It was, the, it was at the end of the third or fourth draft, when the work was starting to read well, that I realised I'd written a novel about memory, all types of memory, from memorising to memorialising. I'd written a novel about memory at a time of bereavement when all I had was memory. The central character of the memory trap is not the pianist Ramsey, he became secondary, but Nina Jamison. She's an international consultant on memorial projects. She assists groups around the world to define, develop and build monuments. I researched monuments. I collected monuments. I thought of them as solid memory, as if that were possible. But when a beloved dies, that's exactly what you want. Over the course of my life, I've been fascinated by the strange alchemy whereby the private and ephemeral meanderings of a freely ranging, borderless mind transmogrify into tangible, observable behaviours, whether it be a decision to marry or move house or a work of art like a painting, a piece of music or a book. Fascinated and, in the case of the memory trap, profoundly grateful. During the hours spent at my desk, the gaping absence that comes with the death of a beloved, the profound sadness, the anguish of loss, were all muted as I plunged into the lives of my characters and the world of the emerging novel. I was learning that a creative imagination and an intrusive, demanding self are mutually exclusive. The imagination is easily seeded. Books, paintings, music, and landscapes too can energise it. But no matter what the trigger, they all share the same requirements, namely solitude, privacy, and prolonged attention. If the imagination were a landscape, I have been there. The first time we're standing in the vast desert of central Australia, the aged red land stretching in all directions, the blobs of spinifex, the mounds of ancient upheavals, and an undercurrent, a vibration, a presence of everlasting life. And Antarctica, the craggy white mountains, the glaciers plunging to the waters, the huge icebergs wetly gleaming, the wonder of a land without human footprints. Immersed in this sublime landscape, the self is silenced. One's entire sense of being becomes continuous with the environment. Like invisible stitching, the join cannot be seen or felt. This is mental travelling in 3D. Kilauea, on the large island of Hawaii, is the longest continually active volcano on the face of the earth. It's another of these landscapes of the imagination. Kilauea is no tidy coned mountain. It's an entire volcanic landscape of hardened lava formed from numerous eruptions over the centuries. When I visit, 
The eruption is occurring in a remote area of the island. From there, the lava flows through underground tubes and eventually into the Pacific Ocean. My journey to the location where the lava enters the sea starts on a late afternoon of fierce, uncomplicated heat. The Hawaiian sky is its usual pristine blue and a clear night is predicted with a full moon. This adventure has been beckoning for years. It's hard to believe that at last I'm on my way. I pull my hat lower, shuffle my backpack into a more comfortable hollow and set off over the lava bench. In a short time, I'll be standing as close as one can to creation. Where lava from Kilauea pours into the sea, I will actually witness the formation of new land. Far in the distance, through the quivering heat, I can just see a cloudy column of smoke. This is the marvellous spot. This is my destination. The trek takes me over a high, broad cliff comprised of huge, curving slabs of black lava. I'm tentative at first, but soon my feet learn the plains and pitfalls of this turbulent ground. To my right, beyond the danger signs warning walkers away from the cliff edge, stretches the Pacific Ocean. I can't see the breaking waves, but I feel nicely swaddled by their crash and roar. The breeze, with no barriers to navigate on this barren ground, is stiff and steady. I stop for a moment, lift my hat and shake out my already damp hair, raise my face to the wind. I close my eyes, stand motionless in the rushing air and the seas roar, peaceful and happy. And then off again, over the lethal ground, skipping and leaping, marvellously nimble and filled with a mysterious vigour as I skim these lobes of solid lava. They're smooth and hard and overlapping, like billowing black blisters or slabs of hardened liver. The charred land stretches ahead of me to the column of smoke and beyond. It stretches to the left as far as I can see. I have a sense of myself as an insignificant dot in this vast landscape, yet at the same time I feel wantonly, sublimely limitless, as if merged with the environment itself. I bend down, run my hand over one of the smoothly sculpted mounds. It's hot and finely textured and no point in trying to explain it. A rush of something fizzes up my arm and billows in my chest. Crouched on the blackened earth, I hold on to the sensation and only when it abates do I continue my journey. Skirting the crevices, gliding over the rise and fall of the lava slabs, five, ten, fifteen minutes pass before I stop again, this time to drink from my flask. My feet are frying. Briefly I'm tempted to remove shoes and socks and dust my feet in water. Instead, I lift my hat and pour a cupful over my head. It's gorgeously chill. The sun is now low in the sky. I remove my sunglasses, peer into the distance. The column of spray and steam is closer now. It looks like a messy great geyser. I twist around. It's hard to be sure, but I think I'm more than halfway, which is when I see it nearly a metre down in a narrow crevice just behind me, 
a small fern clinging greenly to a barren ledge, a plant sprouting in the lava, new life in all this devastation. In the waning light, the other people making this journey become smudged and shadowy, and soon there's a splash of torchlight skittering the lava mounds. The sky, greenish near the horizon, curves upwards into a glorious rich blue. The first stars are out. I leave my torch switched off. My vision is clear. Closer and closer I come. Darker and darker is the sky. And soon I reach a cluster of shadows, a dozen people standing still and watching. The sea crashes and sizzles, the spray scatters, the signs warn, stay back, stay back. And there, there it is, orange, yellow, red, a liquid fire in the night light, pouring sinuously, such a leisurely miracle, lava pouring out of the land and exploding in the roiling sea. Feel it. Feel the energy of the stream of fire from the great volcano, Kilauea. We live in the fast-paced digital world. This is a world of infinite information, easy communication with like-minded people, immediate connection with strangers, access to archives and catalogues, the New York Review of Books, the entire National Library, so much in reach without leaving home. And while there's quite a lot of rubbish, the riches are far, far more abundant. It has all happened so quickly. Our contemporary world is characterised by change. One day... I was marvelling at my new IBM Selectric typewriter, the next, and I'm Skyping with my friend Constantine in New York. Even the verb is new. I embrace the digital world, who would not? But the change has been so rapid and so pervasive that caught in the white water of the moment, it's easy to miss what is being left behind. In particular... Privacy, solitude, restlessness, reticence, focused attention, contemplation. All the properties that fuel imaginative work are being squeezed in today's world. Compounding the issue, several of these qualities have acquired new social and moral attributes. Shyness is now included among the list of disorders in the American Psychiatric Association Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Naughty children, children who can't sit still, children who are not achieving in school are these days likely to be diagnosed as having ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. The child who chooses the library over the playground, who is quiet and reserved and prefers the edge of the crowd, risks being diagnosed as social isolate. Asperger's syndrome is used to describe any child who reveals social skills that are not perfectly aligned to the ever-shrinking normal. While any child who has a singular focus on a particular activity, whether it be block building, go-karting, maths or music, risks a diagnosis of obsessive-compulsive disorder. The denigration of privacy, the pathologising of reticence and solitude, 
the conflating of restlessness with a form of attention deficit, the redefining of focused attention as a disabling obsession, threatens the future of creative work. Original work is original exactly because it emerges from a perspective that sees beyond the mainstream. Without restlessness, without a level of impatience with the status quo, human understanding would never advance. Without uninterrupted time alone, without the opportunity for mental travelling, without prolonged periods of contemplation, creativity is stymied. Without obsession, and I'm perfectly at ease with the word, there would be no musicians, nor mathematical whiz kids, no writers or artists. Privacy has been derailed and at the same time redefined negatively as secretive. Sharing counts among the modern age as essential activities. There's a rush to tell everyone everything and tell it immediately. This actually cauterizes the imagination, stops it in its tracks. It's as if something has not truly happened until it has been communicated, whether it be the purchase of a new pair of shoes the meeting of one's own true love, or the beheading of a journalist in Syria. And it's not just events that come into existence through sharing. Identity itself is constructed by and manipulated through these communications. We live in a world of non-stop connectivity, texting, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and their numerous spin-offs, The mobile phone is the metaphorical heartbeat of the modern individual. We sleep with it, run with it, eat with it. It accompanies us to the bathroom. It's in reach while we have sex. It's a common sight to see two people seated together in a cafe, each occupied with their mobile, the only communication occurring when one shares his or her screen with the other. And the phenomenon of the selfie, how quickly it's taken off. An instant click which puts each and every one of us in the limelight. A single selfie disseminated through Facebook, Instagram or any of the sharing forums can elicit dozens of of immediate responses and how reassuring it is to know we're not alone in the world. With Wi-Fi fast blanketing the earth, even in landscapes of the imagination, the digital heart strongly. There is no downtime. There is no solitude. And with new products like the Apple Watch, the situation is not about to improve. Creative work has been further undermined by multitasking. Attention spans haven't shortened in the digital age. Indeed, the contrary is probably true. But instead of one task occupying a few hours, people will be juggling two or three tasks every few minutes. Email, Facebook, 24-7 news, Twitter, instant photography, music, and of course work. The singular attention, the obsessiveness of the creative artist is the opposite of multitasking and is fast going the way of the typewriter and the tape cassette. Then there is that wonderful, seductive, infinite stock of information literally at our fingertips, the internet. 
We've adapted very quickly, so much so that when we want to know something, we want to know it now. Whether it be the closest bagel shop with pictures to show if the bagels are authentic, or whether there's a DVD featuring the very fetching Jonas Kaufman singing Andrea Chenier, there's not, I've checked. It doesn't matter what the nature of the information, we expect to have it immediately. And we don't stop with a single answer. One search leads to umpteen others, and an hour later, there's little to show for our time. Back in the days when smoking was de rigueur, people would use cigarettes to take a break from work. These days, email and Facebook have replaced the ciggy break. But after 10 minutes, rather than returning to work, we're more likely to be responding to half a dozen Facebook postings, checking some must-see blogs, following a couple of essential Twitter feeds, feeding our own, combing photo files for a shop that must be sent to your friend X immediately. And the train of thought of minutes ago is lost in all this frenetic activity. The imagination, if neglected, readily becomes dormant. If it's not nurtured, it can actually decay. Muscles that are unused start to ache and thereby draw attention to themselves. Unfortunately, the imagination goes far more quietly. The digital world is all about us, about the self. Reading novels, listening to music, wandering vast and otherworldly landscapes, daydreaming. In all these activities, the mind is relieved of the clamouring self. In all these activities, the ego is not shouting, look at me, listen to me, like me, follow me, friend me. Some terrible verbs there. <laughs> In all, it's terrible what's happened to verbs. In all these situations, with the self-quiet, the imagination has room to range. The self is a greedy selfish beast. It might stare at its navel and see an entire world, but it's deluded. While attention is directed at the self, the clouds overhead will pass unnoticed, the eastern rosella scrabbling and the grass will be overlooked, the boy falling out of the sky and the brilliant lava hitting the sea will not be seen. This music and that novel will be ignored. We are already far too occupied. The modern self, the sense of who we are and who we wish to be, is a malleable entity, regularly made over to elicit approbation from others and satisfaction from ourselves. We shape our Facebook profile, we select our Twitter feeds, we create whatever self suits the purpose at hand. The modern self is infinitely plastic. From politicians to parents, from consumerism to courtship, the modern self has become an all-consuming project, pleasing it, placating it, tending it, polishing it, exercising it, publicising it. Advertisements more ubiquitous than ever with location services and a wealth of metadata enhance the process. Concerned as they are with making the self look better, feel better, drive better, travel better, drink better, run better. They're all about the ever-improving project that is me. The self, as the human project par excellence, defines the modern condition. And the self, me, 
as a fluid creation, an ongoing work, has become the primary creative endeavour. But all is not lost. Solitude, privacy, contemplation, and above all, the muting of self are essential requirements for the imagination to work. Connectivity, sharing, multitasking, and egocentricity are primary features of contemporary life. But we can have it all. We can allow for both ways of being. There are digital treasures and digital time-wasting. We need to be selective and we need to be disciplined. It's not necessary to jettison Facebook, but neither is it necessary to check it hourly. So too with discussion and chat forums and Twitter. And rather than do a search online for information, dig out that old hard copy encyclopedia instead, if you've kept it. And don't bring your mobile phone into your immediate workspace. Having it all means digital free time. It means walking in the park or along a deserted ocean beach, having left the mobile at home. It's enjoying an afternoon of music with all digital devices turned off. It's reading a poetry, a poetry, a novel, essays, away from your various devices. And should a query pop up in the course of reading, making a note to investigate later. I take a digital-free 24 hours every week. I've borrowed from a, an Orthodox Jewish friend of mine, and I now turn everything off from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. I really look forward to my Saturdays, and I feel replenished after it. Having it all does mean digital free time. But I believe we can have it all. We can enjoy the best of the digital world as well as the pleasures of the creative mind. This powerful, mysterious imagination, this ego-free resource which combines memory, emotion, knowledge, desire and intellect, this wondrous human property that has guided human progress from the cave to where we are today. Thank you. Andrea, thank you so much for telling us about the potential, the potency and the preciousness of mental travel and the exquisite results of it well applied. Andrea is happy, happy to take a couple of questions. Um, we do have microphones and please do wait for a microphone so that we can all hear your question. Down the front. Uh, I probably don't need no, a microphone. please do. Andrea, do you want the microphone? I'm interested in your digital downtime. Um, uh, I've got two questions about that. Do you notify people about it? And and <laughs> and 
tell you, do you have a noticeable creative um, uh, effect from that that you that you feel and, and are aware of? Um, everybody does know now that I have my um, digital free Saturdays. I did write something and put it on my website. Um, and then I told people, the thing is that I just ignore the mobile and um, I don't look at my iPad or my computer or anything like that. I will take phone calls on the landline. I'm sort of thinking pre-1985 is fine. Um, <laughs> What I find is um, it's not so much that I feel more creative after it, but I feel relief. I, I do find that all of the digital pressures all of the time, I, it's very stressful. And when that's turned off, there's an opening up of things. So actually, and you're probably right, uh, maybe, maybe I do go to my desk more happily on the Sunday. Certainly, I, I do have many jottings on the Saturday. I will, I'm very happy to jot. I do often listen to music and, um, and, and I read. So, yes, maybe that opening up, maybe, yes. Sunday is my best day of work now. Hi, Andrea. Thank you. Um, you wrote a book about Susan Sontag, I understand. Could you tell us a little bit about what gave rise to that and, and your experience? It wasn't a book on Susan Sontag. Um, I was asked to review a new... Well, it's not such a new. It's a new translation of an older um, biography that was written in German in, 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 in 2007 and it's just been translated into English. I am a lifelong devoted follower of Susan Sontag. I did meet her once. Yes, we spoke, no, more. I said something like, aren't you wonderful? And she spoke. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, I meant it was after the volcano lover. I was, I was a little more articulate than that. Um, I have always um, loved her work and she certainly opened up a whole intellectual tradition that I, I don't think I would have... Well, I may have got but it would have taken a lot longer. I needed those early essay collections. So what I did was I just wrote an article. It was a 1,200, 1,400-word article that was published in the March edition of ABR. I took the opportunity of this bad biography um, to actually write about what I think we can take from Susan Sontag. And I do think that her intellectual legacy not only endures, but it will continue to endure. Mm. We have, this is our last question. Um, that was a very powerful lecture. Thank you very much. I, I just wonder... Um, are you intending to have it printed um, to save us looking up the internet or listening to it <laughs> on our MP3s? Um, so are, 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 are you likely to have it published in printed form? Um, Here's the box. I, I know, but... It's very frustrating. Isn't it? It's going on... 
Yeah, it's very frustrating because the previous uh, lectures are only available in audio format. Um, I'm hoping that this, because of the powerful nature of this lecture, that it could actually um, perhaps introduce uh, uh, having a printed version of the lectures. The lecture will be on our website in a transcribed form as well as a podcast. So... I'm so sorry to bring the conversation to a close, but I do hope that you can join us in the foyer for refreshments. And Andrea has kindly agreed to sign copies of her books. And tonight, you can purchase her books in the bookshop with a 10% discount. So get up there and in there, into that bookshop. Now, this evening, you've heard the premiere of Andrea's lecture, and we are very happy that with the support of Peter Rose and the team at Australian Book Review, Andrea will be presenting the lecture in Melbourne on Wednesday the 5th of August, and she will also deliver the lecture at Flinders University in Adelaide on Friday the 9th of October. So you can make your travel plans to follow her, (laughs) or you can tell your friends and family where they have to be. I want to make special mention of our accommodation partner, TFE Hotels, and our beverage partner, Eden Eden Road Wines, and thank them for their contributions to the library's events program. Can I say a big thank you to all of you for being with us this evening to celebrate Australia's literary culture and, in particular, the thoughtful and thought-provoking writing of Andrea Goldsmith. Please join me in thanking Andrea once again and see you upstairs.